Good evening, everybody. Thanks for joining this episode of Mic Drop, episode 11. Can't believe it's already been up to our 11th episode. Um, thanks again for all of the support. It's great to see um, some of our regulars joining, but obviously new faces entering discussion, broadening the chat, and helping us kind of dissect what's happening uh, in the U.S. congressional races as we head towards the midterms. We're going to be talking tonight about Kansas specifically. Title of the episode is We're Not in Kansas Anymore. I'm going to talk about Kansas and what it means. Looking very much forward to your thoughts, your opinions on it. Um, Kansas is pretty conclusive, obviously, in my mind, but I want to talk about some of the nuances that are going to affect um, the new the the uh, the midterms coming up, and what is driving the electorate at this moment in time. We're also going to talk a little bit about Arizona. Um, it's always funny when we have multi-state primaries. There's so much data that a lot of it seems to be contradictory um, because the regions of the state are so different, and the issues that are facing them are unique. And it's important to try to try to look at the data objectively and try to find some of the common threads, some of the common dynamics, and get a sense of what is happening just shy of 100 days um, until the midterms. As most of you know, and as I counsel all the time, what I'm really looking for here is movement, and we've had a lot. And I'm going to talk about that in some of the polls and some of the shifting that is going on. Um, but as always, a little bit of housekeeping first. This is designed to be an interactive platform. The reason I chose this is because I wanted to make sure that I was offering you my best insights in an engaging and interactive way. So this platform here on Colin, this podcast, this mic drop podcast, which we do usually every week on Wednesdays, unless I'm I'm traveling um, somewhere, and I'll talk a little bit about what I'm going to be doing next week because we're, we're probably not going to be able to do it at the regularly scheduled time. Um, but it, it's just a regular conversation, and I'm hoping that as you join, as you continue to join, and as you um, learn and share more about what I'm offering you with my 30 years of experience in this game of political consulting and in this business of doing campaigns, that it brings you a little bit more um, comfort, some more calm, some more understanding of the various dynamics that are driving races and some of the decisions that you will see. My hope is that even in the short time that we've known each other, as it were, um, you're starting to see some of the things uh, that I talk about a little bit differently, hopefully a little bit objectively, and understand what it is that the practitioner the other um, and positioning their candidates and their causes uh, in their best possible light and allow you to kind of not only see through it, but understand it and appreciate the trade, the profession, the craft that is uh, campaigning because campaigns do matter in a democracy and, and political consultants are the, the I think really where the, the rubber hits the road in, in the actual practicing practitioners of democracy. We obviously have candidates and we obviously have voters, but the nexus between the two of those are this peculiar sort of gray area of people who are involved either as volunteers or as professionals, um, as political consultants, as political advisors. And that's that's really what Mike Drop is about. That's what we're trying to do here. And so with that commitment to being engaging, you're part of this, and I need your involvement. We have shifted, as you've noticed in the past few weeks, to not having um, guests 
Certainly not as much. I'm sure I will bring some in as it gets closer, but that's for a reason. Uh, the reason is I think people are looking for not only deeper analysis specifically to the topics of the day, but also the opportunity to join in the conversation and get some of your questions answered. And I've had a couple of questions that were sent a little bit earlier on, and so I'll get to those. But um, please, two things. Jump up on stage here with me. You can see at the bottom of your app, there's the opportunity to join the stage or raise your hand to get in there. You don't need to wait for a break or if I see if I'm going to get to this discussion. All of these questions, I think everybody would admit, regular listeners uh, would suggest or believe that, that all of the questions add a new dimension to what we're trying to do. Um, you can ask more than one question. If there's nobody in the queue, if there is somebody backed up, just drop out. Let somebody else ask a question and hop back up and get back into the end of the line. Uh, we haven't ha missed the opportunity to talk to somebody yet. Um, if you're a little bit gun shy, use the chat feature. You can see the two quote bubbles up there. I think towards the middle or top of your screen, you can use that to send a message and let us know um, um, what it, it, it is that um, – is on your mind. We got a, a quick question came in on the chat right now while we were just talking. So um, let's jump into Kansas if we can. Um, again, there are very few times in campaigns where data is as clear and as discernible as what we were reading, seeing, and hearing, and watching play out in Kansas last night. So some of what I'm going to talk about is is obvious and apparent. Um, a lot of the, the driving factors we're probably not going to know until some of the more in-depth regression analysis has been done. But there are a couple of, of, of points, data points that I do want to bring out and talk to you about. And again, I want your opinion on this stuff. Kansas um, historically has been one of the more conservative states in the union. The type of Republicans which have come out of Kansas um, have varied. There have been kind of the more institutional uh, you know, Bob Dole's of the worlds and the Sibelius's and, and um, a lot more what is, has usually been referred to as, quote unquote, moderate Republicans. But the strain of, of, of Republicanism in Kansas has always been of, of the conservative variety. Um, that's just that's just um, I, I, it just I think goes without saying. Right. It's, it's not whether or not you're a Democrat. This, of course, has changed a little bit, but but not not so much. Republicanism is part of Kansism. I don't know if Kansism is a word, but but that that is a long, deep storied history there. And more often times you're talking about which shade of red it is that you're talking about. And so the outcomes of this referendum, uh, and that's essentially what it was last night. A voting no, a no vote basically meant we will we will um, you know, protect reproductive rights as they as they are and as they stand in in uh, Kansas. Um, a yes vote would actually bring in a more uh, draconian level of of um, regulation and oversight. Um, but but make no mistake, no matter how you cut this, what we're going to see is a bevy of of measures on ballots in the states that are essentially a, a referendum, as we saw in Kansas, on on abortion rights. Okay, we can agree or disagree on what on what the turnout numbers meant, or what the breaks look like in certain demographics, or which policies matter, which way or or or, or don't. 
But the truth of the matter is there are times when cultural touchstones rise to the level of whether or not you're just showing up to say that you are pro-choice or you're pro-life and whether or not you support reproductive rights or you do not and whether or not you believe that this country and the court is heading in the right direction. And I think it's undeniable that that is exactly where we're at at this moment in time. So having said that, there's a couple of uh, factoids that I kind of want to bring up and kind of talk about because I, I found them um, somewhat interesting. W- one of the most interesting facts about last night's Kansas abortion referendum is that rural counties, the rural counties actually, and I retweeted this, somebody put up some data point uh, points on this earlier as I was kind of looking under the hood to get the latest on, on what was going on, but rural counties actually swung more towards no than urban suburban counties compared to the 2020 presidential election. In other words, if you took Trump's performance and you measured it against no in all of these counties, all of the counties in Kansas, there was a bigger delta. There was a bigger differential. There was a bigger shift in rural counties, in deep MAGA counties, moved further away off the Trump train, as it were, towards a protection of abortion rights. Now, these are not apples-to-apples comparisons. I know that. So so don't jump in and kind of beat up on me quite yet. Okay, There'll be plenty of time to do that. But for the moment, I'm not saying that a vote for Trump necessarily means you're pro-life, but there's a pretty damn good correlating factor there. Okay, and the fact that the most conservative counties, which were rural counties last night, had the biggest shift away from one of the crown jewels of Trump's policy proposals, as it were, which was to institute a more conservative court and a pro-life position. The fact that these counties had the bigger shift away is significant. And what it really means, uh, at least a cursory level, is that. There is a significant space happened with the, the overturning of Roe. Big shocker, right? Uh, of course not, and especially with with women. And again, that's that's a guess, but I think it's a pretty educated guess. And I think we're going to be able to do some more analysis. I think there will be some more looks at at the uh, precinct analysis to kind of discern and probably some exit polling that will be done because the, the numbers were so shocking to discern what the gender split was, what the partisan break was. But, and I thought this was interesting, Steve Kornacki, I think you all know who Kornacki is, did some back-of-the-napkin analysis and basically came up with some numbers that suggested that about 20% of Republicans broke off of uh, the the uh, pro-life, as it were, camp and voted for the no position. That's a massive number. That's a tectonic tectonic shift in Republican politics. And a lot of this is happening because it's finally real. This is not theoretical. For 30 years doing Republican campaigns, I can guarantee you there was none of us, none of us as professional consultants who actually believed that it would get to the time where the court would actually overrule Roe. And most of us would have been horribly afraid of that, which brings me to that my next point, and that is there's not a single credible Republican consultant in this country who does not think that this isn't damaging to uh, the Republican Party and to the Republican prospects in the midterm. There's not one. Okay, most most Republican pollsters that I have spoken to, and I've spoken to quite a few over the past six months, uh, I've spoken to a lot of them since Roe, um, believed 
all believed that um, th- that the numbers were uh, the support levels for Roe were were what they called quote unquote baked in. And what what I mean by that, you're going to hear this term probably a lot from Republicans, Republican consultants, talking heads, Republicans on Twitter, who will say that the that the abortion issue is baked in. And let me tell you what they mean by that. What they're suggesting is that because the abortion issue for for, for really for all voters up until up until Roe was overturned, but but particularly amongst Republican voters, um, were already um, factored into um, the 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 um, vote choices of those voters where abortion was a deciding and driving factor. See, folks, for most voters, the abortion issue is not a top issue. And it never has been, or at least it hasn't been for t- since 71, 72, since Roe. Uh, let me say that again. For most voters, nobody is citing abortion. I shouldn't say nobody, but less than 5% of voters say that abortion is their top issue. And what that really tells you is nobody believed that the threat was all that real. It was something that was decided law, some of that language that you heard. There were a lot of Republicans who got complacent about the fact that even though they would talk about this or run candidates on this, it was more of a kind of a lens issue as opposed to a priority issue. A lens issue is one of those issues where your candidate takes a position so uh, to give you a, to give you a sense of who they are. Are you a pro-choice Republican like a Christy Todd Whitman was in New Jersey or a Pete Wilson was in the mid '90s in California? Or are you, you know, kind of a fire-breathing pro-lifer, right? That was the discerning mark. And even in that scenario, there were not a lot of voters in the Republican primaries that were voting on the life issue alone. Okay, there just weren't. There just aren't. That's changed, and that is changing, and it's changing considerably because it's real now, because it's gone, right? The threat is imminent. It's it's here. The, the battle is engaged, and this has shifted voter opinion considerably, including amongst Republicans. And let's talk real briefly about what it's meant for both the Republican and the Democratic parties, okay? For Republicans, what it means is there's a continued erosion amongst people who are not comfortable in the party. This this started with Trump and Trumpism, right, where this shakeout between this demographic you've heard me talk about ad nauseum, college-educated white suburban women, Abortion was one of those issues, but it was more peripheral. It was really more cultural issues. We saw a huge shakeoff of these voters when Trump started defending the Confederate flag, when, when, the, the, when, when Trump both sides, good people on both sides at Charlottesville, and where we saw an enormous shift, an enormous shift on racial issues, unlike anything I've ever seen was after the George Floyd murder. Okay, there was a, there was a collapse there was a collapse amongst college-educated white voters, generally women more specifically. That did rebound, by the way. It did come back. But what happened as it did come back? You have this road decision. Okay, so that's the Republican side, and set that aside for a second. On the Democratic side, just two months ago, you heard my, people like myself and campaign professionals saying, we are starting to see the emanations of a significant Republican pickup in the midterms. There is a red wave swelling, okay? 
if, for those of you that listen to me on Politicology, talking on Ron Stetzler's Politicology, I had one major caveat, which was I had always and always believed that January 6th would be a very significant driver of public opinion because of negative partisanship, and I'll explain that more in just a second. But Roe was an earthquake, okay? It brought back all of the lackluster Democratic support for Joe Biden home to the Republican Party. And let me explain this really, really clearly in people's minds, because I believe this even more now than I did then. And that is what the, the, the coalescing of Democrats back into the Democratic fold is not pro-Biden vote, and it's not pro-Democrat vote. It's anti-Republican vote. And this is extraordinarily important to understand when you're doing analysis, because in my opinion, and I think there is overwhelming evidence to suggest this is the case, voters are motivated to show up, turnout being one huge factor, and we saw this in Kansas last night, by what they are against, not by what they are for. And the numbers just a couple of months ago, I'd say six weeks ago, before the January 6th hearings, before the overturning of Roe, eight weeks, seven, whatever it is, six, seven, eight weeks, before that, the numbers were as low for an incumbent president as I have ever seen. In fact, I think you had to go back to Harry Truman to see how bad they were in Gallup back in the mid-40s. Okay, bad numbers, really bad, and all of the fundamentals, inflation's out of control, 75, 80% of people think that the country's headed in the wrong direction. These are the historical trend line of the party controlling all branches of government, um, doing well. Like every indication was like a five alarm fire saying this is going to be a problem. And the Democrats' only real answer, at least Biden's only real answer, was stuff like build back better and infrastructure. Um, the Afghanistan withdrawal, um, which again is gone now because of the killing of all Zawahiri, but, but, but you th think back folks, it wasn't that long ago. All of the metrics are pointing in the wrong, wrong direction for Democrats, all of them. And there's just no way anybody could credibly look at what was happening and say, this is going to be a, a good year for the Democrats. Now there's still a hundred days. And what I do know about a hundred days left in a campaign is that things are going to change. They could get better for the Democrats. They could get worse. But what I do know is they're not going to stay the same. Like the things are, do not stay the same for three months in this business. And look back 100 days at a very different scenario from where we were. Okay? But the point I was getting at was Democrats came home. The generic ballot is shifting strongly towards the Democrats. I think virtually every public-facing poll in the last 72 hours is showing Democrats up in the generic ballot. Biden's numbers are slowly crawling back up. But most importantly, we can talk about polls, we can talk about approval ratings. When you look at election results, like we saw in Kansas, it tells you that something is foundationally happening on the ground. And of course, I hate to use the old adage, the old, the old trite saying, but you know, the best, the only poll that matters is election day, right? That's what, what every losing candidate says. But there's obviously some truth to it because one, it's true, but two, it also gives us actual data. It's not speculative. We don't have to worry about the precision of the instrument and who the pollster was and what the sample size is. Is it Republican leaning? Is it Democrat leaning? Like none of that matters because you have real data. 
And what we have from last night is real data. And what the data said was big shift in Republicans, probably 20% of Republicans voted no. If 20% of Republicans shake off of the GOP, uh, you know, it will be a disaster for the Republicans in the midterms. Now, that's not going to happen, by the way. Okay. These 20% of Republicans who voted no in Kansas last night are still Republicans. Most of those, and by most, I mean over 50% of those, are likely to come back home. There's an opening. There was movement. And anybody who listens to, to me talk about this and go over races and what's happening, what do I say over and over and over again about polling at this point in the cycle? I'm looking for movement. You saw huge movement last night, 20-point shift. That's like once-in-a-generational movement. Red state, red history. High turnout, 20% shift, very significant findings, okay? So that's, that's first. The second is it happened in rural counties, deep MAGA country. You can't get to, by the way, you can't get to a 20-point shift without significant movement in Republican-dense parts of the state. So that's significant. Another data point I'm going to read to you right now. Uh, This is from last night, about 242,000 voters in Johnson County. Johnson County, by the way, is the most populous in the state of Kansas. It's a suburban county largely, uh, which is the demographic, which is the sweet spot for what I'm looking for, what you should be looking for. This is the type of area that gives you the margins of of who's going to control Congress. 242,000 voters showed up. Okay, Johnson County turnout in the 2018 Kansas governor general election was 270,000. Okay, what does that mean, Mike? It means that the turnout from last night, which is still going up and up and up, in a midterm primary is looking as much like a general election gubernatorial cycle at about parity. It's sitting at about 90% of the same turnout. That's extraordinary. That means the lowest cycle turnout, when you should have the lowest number of voters, was almost almost at or matching one of the highest turnout scenarios. That's crazy talk. Like, that doesn't happen. I don't know of any scenario where I've ever seen that kind of a match happen before. Now, in a state like Kansas, you can't get to those kind of turnout numbers unless you're also seeing big Republican turnout. So I don't want to read too much into that from a partisan standpoint. I don't want to suggest too much that this is all just Dems pissed off and showing up and going to the polls. It also means Republicans are engaged, completely engaged, and are showing up to the polls. Now, with the margin that this lost by, that the no campaign, you know, no won, meaning that the, 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 the pro-life side lost, it's a little bit confusing, but the, the, the differential was coming is coming out at like a 65-35 split. This is not a close race anywhere. By the way, no no one in every single county in Kansas. So you can speculate if it's, you know, wealthy white suburban women who really just want their capital gains tax cuts or whether it's in districts with, you know, uh, rural, non-college-educated white men. Like, it, it lost everywhere. 
got his ass kicked, as they say. This has got an ass whooping. Like, there's just no way to acknowledge anything different. I think even Lindsey Graham today, coming off the floor of the Senate, said, "We got to pay attention to this as Republicans because this is this is five alarms. This is this is this is this is an earthquake. This is the type of a campaign cycle which could be extraordinarily problematic for um, for Repu- for our party for Republicans." Okay, so there, there, there's nobody trying to say this is not huge, and anybody that is, um, they're not even fooling themselves. Okay, this is a very big problem for the Republicans. The dog has caught the car. They don't know what to do with this, and if there is anything that could save Democratic majorities, it will largely be driven by the the overturning of the Roe decision now it's not just that by the way like this perfect storm this perfect matrix has developed for the democrats at a time when things looked as dark as they could be um what has changed most fundamentally most foundationally was this this uh and i I do want to say one other, one other last data point. And by the way, jump into the queue if you guys have questions and want to talk a little bit more about Kansas, because I don't want to, I don't want to go on too far, too far. If you guys want to keep visiting on other topics or other issues, but right, right, you know, as of about eleven o'clock Central Time um, last night, the Kansas abortion vote had about one hundred and forty thousand more votes than the two governor primaries combined, which means that nearly 20% of voters came out just to vote on the amendment. Now, Kansas has closed primaries. So if you're a Republican, you can only go and show up and vote in the Republican primary. And if you're a Democrat, you can only show up and vote in the Democratic primary. If you're a declined a state or no party preference or an independent, however you refer to it, you cannot just show up and vote whoever you want. You can't vote in that party primary. The party, the primary is closed. But you can show up and vote on, 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 on ballot measure issues, right? Those are not partisan issues, technically. Any, any Kansan can show up and vote on those. So, but 20% of the electorate, there was 20% more votes, 20% more votes on the amendment than there were on, uh, votes for the two primary, the two governor primaries combined. In other words, if you added up all the votes in the Democratic primary, all the votes in the Republican primary, the amendment still had 20% more votes, which means there, that this is an extraordinary turnout mechanism where there are going to be these questions on the ballot in states. And I don't know if we've got a complete list yet of all of the states that are going to have abortion questions on the ballot. Um, if anybody out there um, has any information or has done that research, put it in the chat or send it to me or tweet it to me later. That's going to be extremely decisive as to what turnout is going to look like and how the partisan break is going to come out. California, it is on the ballot. I do know that. Um, and if you look at some of the competitive seats, David Valadeo, Republican incumbent in the Central Valley, he's already polling at a negative eight position against Rudy Salas in the Central Valley, heavily Latino district. Um, that's bef- you know before we're seeing the actual turnout numbers that are happening in states like Kansas. 
You got a, a Republican incumbent in a negative eight position. Mike Garcia, who is probably the most vulnerable Republican in the House of Representatives, his seat's pretty much gone. Uh, he's in the Santa Clarita Valley, northern Los Angeles County area. The Orange County seat's now with Katie Porter, um, um, Young Kim, Michelle Steele. These these races are going to be really fascinating to watch. And the reason why they're going to be fascinating is going to be a good segue. I'm going to take Renee's question in just a second. Thanks for jumping into the queue. But let me leave it with this. It's going to be fascinating because Orange County, California, those congressional seats have the highest number of college-educated Republican women of any congressional district anywhere in the country. And that's why... Those districts have flipped back and forth and back and forth. In 2016, massive undervote for Trump. Republican levels in 2016 down ballot stayed stayed um, commensurate with Republican turnout, which meant Republicans were showing up and voting for their Republican member of Congress, but they could not vote for Trump. In 2018, those same precincts literally voted for Nancy Pelosi and the Democrats as a rejection of Donald Trump in the big Democratic pickup year when they got the majority back. And in 2020, they voted for Joe Biden at the top of the ticket, but they voted Republican again, down ticket as a check. Really important critical seats. I would argue Orange County right now, most of those seats are the most indicative of this swing vote and how this swing voter behaves anywhere in the country. Okay, because they've given us the last three election cycles. They're voting exactly the way the movement of the electorate is going, which tells us pretty clearly that key demographic, that insightful demographic that determines elections in the United States of America remains that same group I've been talking to you about since I was working on the Lincoln Project. It's college-educated suburban Republican women, and that is literally what Orange County is. So be watching those polls. Watch those seats in Orange County, California. Watch where Katie Porter is sitting and the generic ballot. Watch Young Kim's seat. Watch Michelle Steele's seat. And I'm going to throw in Mike Garcia's because that's also wealthier suburban uh, enclaves outside of L.A. County um, up in the Santa Clarita Valley uh, where he's basically been redrawn out. But the movement there is basically that same demographic. If those seats, if those three seats are competitive, okay, if if Young Kim, Michelle Steele, and Katie Porter's seats, if you watch those three, it's going to give you really, really good insight into who's going to control Congress um, in the coming uh, November elections. I'm going to go to Renee, Josh, regular caller. Give me one second. I saw Renee up here on stage. I'm going to bring her up. And invite her to ask her questions because she was waiting in the queue. Renee, go ahead and unmute. How are you? I'm good. How are you, Mike? Good. Good to have you back. Uh, thanks. Um, I would. I mean, this is a little off topic, but I was looking at. Um, I was trying to pay attention last night to the, uh, particularly the Trump endorsed candidates, and to see, you know, what happened with those primaries mm-hmm. um, across the board. And I saw that Blake Masters came out, and you know, as Mark Kelly's opponent. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wasn't really surprised by that, but when I looked at, when I was looking at Michigan, when, um, Gibbs came out of that primary as the victor, I was really surprised because I had seen earlier in the week that the spending in that race was really unbalanced. 
Um, I think they said that uh, the incumbent spent like two point four million or something, and the other guy spent like twenty six thousand. Mm-hmm. How did that happen? Well, like, get- yeah, I will. Okay, so a couple things happened, and, and Renee, thanks for the questions because this is good. This is good stuff. We'll, we'll segue a little bit out of Kansas, but feel free to come back on the Kansas questions, folks, as you've got them. But I did want to cover this here, and that people are looking rightfully at these primaries to determine how well Donald Trump is doing, how much of a hold he has on the party, how much this danger of Trumpism is not only consumed the Republican Party, either it's an entirety or whether or not there's a way. Uh, back from this for Republicans, right? So that's why we're looking at places like Arizona and saying, uh, you know, Carrie Lake as the governor, like, you know, right. who cra- who crawled in. And, and really interesting, too, by the way. And look, I'm, I'm a big believer that Arizona is actually a bluer state than people realize. It's been, it's been yeah, it's been trending into that direction for the last four or five election cycles, the real break is how well you perform in Maricopa County. Yeah. And that's that's where Hobson had a, a big lead going early. Carrie Lake starts, you know, claiming voter fraud and, you know, Pinal County and, you know, the all, Yuma County are, you know, corrupt or whatever she was saying around 11 o'clock. By the time everybody wakes up, she's ahead by enough of a margin because Hobson wasn't able to pull off enough of a um, – of a margin, um, but where she did do well, where the non-Trump candidate did do well, was in the wealthy, white, college-educated enclaves of Scottsdale in Maricopa County, right. which which is different than the data that we were seeing. I mean, a little bit's different than the data that we were seeing in Kansas on the abortion question, where there was hemorrhaging in the deep MAGA counties. Right. So what does that mean? Right. These are two different pieces of divergence data. What does that mean? And that's why I I will always caution you. And again, I I don't see this as a pundit or, or as an analyst. I see this as a practitioner. What I'm telling you from a campaign perspective, you're going to hear everybody writing their their op-ed pieces and who's smarter here and who's smarter there. Ninety percent of these people have never actually run campaigns. When I'm looking at the campaign, all I'm looking for is movement. And what last night told me is that the Republican base is not secure. That's what it's told me. It told me that the Republicans have problems in deep MAGA counties in Kansas on abortion, and they've got problems with Trump candidates in wealthy white suburban enclaves in Scottsdale, Arizona. That's what I'm looking for. And that tells me I've got attack points as a Democrat. I've got attack points to move the ball forward offensively that I did not have 100 days ago. Okay, that's the, what I'm telling you now is not the way you're going to hear, you know, the, the, the people writing their op-ed pieces or the CNN or MSNBC talking heads. That's not what they're going to tell you because these people have never run campaigns. Ninety percent of them have never run campaigns. All I'm looking for is openings right now. What is all happening on the Democratic side is a coalescing of the base. The movement that is happening for Democrats is putting them in an offensive position where 100 days ago they were completely on the defense, huddling in a corner, hoping that the shadows would protect them from the size of this red wave that was coming. They didn't have any tools in their arsenal to offensively move forward. The Republican base was actually intact. Roe changed everything. 
It changed everything. Okay. And so I, I, I'm not going to say, you know, did Trump do good or did Trump do bad last night? Yes, he did both. He did an Eric, right? He pulled an Eric. He supported both sides and he won one and he lost one. And that is really what Trump is trying to do right now is keep his head above water. I do believe that Kevin McCarthy has convinced him to keep his nose out of the race until after the midterms because if Trump does get into this race, it will have really negative impacts for the Republican Party. That would be probably a fourth strike. Like that's strike four. Strike one is Roe. Strike two is Uvalde. Strike three is January 6th. You're out. Strike four would be Trump getting into the race. You know, assuming nothing changed. So the the way that happens, to answer your question, the way a Trump candidate can be outspent four or five to one and still win is that still remains the most significant plurality of the base, especially in a multi-candidate field. Not always. You can beat them straight up, too. But in a multi-candidate field, the Trump candidates are going to do well. And the danger of Trump's presidency, or, or at least securing the Republican nomination, is almost 100% of the Republican primaries are still winner-take-all contests. And what that means is you only need a plurality in a multi-candidate field to, to get all of the electoral votes, to get all of the delegate votes, rather, that go to convention. That's how Trump won last time. you got to remember, Trump didn't get over 50% of the Republican votes in the primary when he ran in 2016. He got a plurality. But in winner-take-all states, that's all you need, and that's what Trump is looking at, that and how to stay out of prison. But I'm hoping that answered your question, Renee. Does that, does that, does that work? It does. Yeah. I have a quick follow-up question, if that's okay, on yeah. Kansas. So yep. after the d- debacle unfolds last night, I mean, does it, does it, do the Democrats not wake up this morning going, we need to shut up about anything but abortion until the midterms? Well, God, I hope so. I, I, I hope I'm so because I was looking through or the Democrats, know, the, the Democrats should be talking about three things. Okay. They should be talking about Roe. They should be talking about January 6th and they should be talking still about Republicans positions on guns because, think, yeah. and here's why, let me explain why. First of all, they, they are in the majority on all of those issues, but that's not really what's important to me. What's important to me, if I'm running the campaigns, if I was running the Democrats, you know, strategy operation for the DCCC, the reason why is because it's easy to paint the Republicans as the extremists on these issues. Right. And, and unfortunately, at this moment in American history, you're not convincing or persuading anybody in the middle on your policy solutions. When I mean you, I mean both parties. I mean nobody is because nobody is changing their minds on positions. What they're voting for is opposition to the extremist party. And what Roe did was it gave Democrats that frame back. What Republicans had prior was the economy. And, and the, the, the Democrats' explanation for that, I'm sorry if I offend anybody, was piss poor, okay? You can't tell people you're not in a recession when they're hurting painfully, deeply, badly. That just doesn't play in Peoria, okay? I, but, but, but I'm not going to spend any time on that because the Democrats shouldn't spend any time on that. What they should be talking about is Republican extremism, and they have all of the ammunition that they need to win and to capitalize and keep forward momentum. 
if you're explaining, you're losing. And so when you see, when you see Lindsey Graham explaining off of the floor of the Senate to reporters what happened in Kansas, it means they're losing and they know it. When you hear Republican politicians parsing, remember the burn pit thing that just happened, and they're all trying to explain why it was a, a, a ruse and a and a, and a and a and a parliamentary trick and a budget trailer bill, and it was you know discretionary funds. Like it was painful to watch. Maybe maybe it's fun to watch, right? But watching them try to explain that nonsense. You're losing. That's literally what that means. So when you're watching these Republicans trying to explain a bad vote on a burn pit bill, that's literally what that means is you're losing. If you're explaining, you're losing. And right now, the Democrats have three tremendous pieces of artillery in their arsenal. And if they do not do not start firing on that now and walking down the field of battle towards victory, I don't I don't know how to help them. There's nothing else I, I can help them with. Yeah. Oh, sorry. All right, Renee, I'm going to jump over to Josh. Thanks so much for joining us. Jump back in the queue if you've got another question. I appreciate you being a regular caller. Thanks so much, Mike. You bet. Josh, go ahead and unmute. Thanks for waiting, buddy. What you got for us this week? Hey, what's going on, Mike? Hey, how are you? I'm good. You know, I actually listened to your uh, that episode with you and Ron Steph on Politicology today. Mm-hmm. And um, you, you said it. I agree with pretty much everything you said, but you, you didn't make a point that I've always had kind of a contention with is, you know, uh, it was about the working class and Democrats knowing their base versus Republicans knowing their base. And I'm not, I'm not saying that you're, you're wrong. I, I you know, I, I've always remembered the, you know, Bernie and the Bernie bros and that movement were saying something similar about the Democrats not being a part of the working class. Now, my point is, is that Republicans know their base because they have a one of a smaller and more monolithic base, easier to know them. The Democrats have a probably much more multifactual, monolithic base, and 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 on the point that Democrats don't know their base, for me, it's always been that the Democrats don't know who the fuck to talk to, mm-hmm. because. They have a lot of people to talk to, and on the one hand, it's a good thing, it's a big tent. And on the working class point, you know, I, I, I always felt that when people talk about, quote unquote, the working class, that they're sort of, not intentionally, but talking about, like, maybe perhaps the white working class. I mean, the, the, one, the biggest, strongest base of the Democratic Party are, are, are black people, and they're also plenty of working class black folks and they mm-hmm. all vote for the most part democratic and I don't think there's any question that the Democrats know how to talk to them or at least well I don't know how to talk to them but and I just find that the framing that so for example you made a point that the the, the, the Democrats not the part of the working class which by implication would say that the Republicans are the part of the working class now how you can look at it like perhaps a lot more, uh, you know, blue collar, on undereducated white working class vote Republican, whereas a lot of say similar socioeconomic black folks vote Democrat. They're also white work or they're also 
it just doesn't, it's just, I, the framing just seems like inaccurate. I mean, like the Democrats pass bills that actually help working class, whereas the Republicans just don't do that shit. Like the CHIP Act, for example, that's going to create lots of jobs with all the factories that have to be built across the country and make that happen. And, and, I, and I just, I just have it, I just take a lot of issue with that kind of framing with yeah. how to really describe it. Like, and, and I completely agree that the Democrats suck at messaging, but not because they don't know their base, but because they don't know who the fuck to talk to, because there's so many <laughs> talk. I mean, there's, uh, they have to kind of keep the left sort of like complacent and not too pissed off. You know, the, the, the yeah. Like, so let me. You know what I'm saying, man? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So let me, let me, let me take, let me take a crack at this. Uh, and let me, and because it, first of all, I'm glad there's a discussion about it, because I think that there's been so much kind of uh, almost denial about uh, these these shifting coalitions that um, both parties, I think, have had struggled with it a little bit. But I, I am, I am definitely seeing the Republicans lean into. This new shift, and let me let me talk about what that what, what's happening. Okay, so you have to understand that the the most significant transformation that is happening in our society right now and in our politics is the separation of people with a college education and those without a college education. Okay, if you understand just that. And you see that lens happening through all of society. A lot of things start to make sense. Okay? So I'm going to explain that in a little bit more in just a second. But I also want you to understand this is not Mike Madrid's opinion. Mike Madrid is not saying, I think that the, the Republican Party is becoming the party of the working class. Google it. The, the people... Yeah, no, the the working class is saying that, okay? And as a political consultant, my job is not to you know, say these policies work or those policies work. My job is to understand voting behavior. I want to understand what these voters are telling us, okay? So I, what, what is, I'm not a big believer that most working class folks have a huge confidence in government in the first place. They just never have. They certainly haven't in my lifetime. So when the Democrats are selling them like, oh, we're doing a child care tax credit, we're doing a chip act, we're doing build back better, we're doing infrastructure, all of these are, the government is doing all of this for you. That is not the way blue collar folks see the world. What they're looking for is largely anything that aids in the upward ascension of their own mobility which they see as the fruits of their own labor at the jobs that they're at or the jobs that they want that that and it's it, it's almost so so simplistic that it's it's overlooked by people who think about these things because every time i talk to a democrat and god bless them i you know most of my family are democrats so we have these conversations the 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 the, the, the answer is always how can people how can working class people especially latinos how can latinos vote more republican when the democrats are doing all these things from the government to help them out and the answer is that's not the way working class people look view the world Okay. It doesn't mean that it's not, they won't take it because who wouldn't take it? It doesn't mean that they may not support it, but it's not at the top of their priority lists. 
Okay, and so so uh, that's the, the the other piece I really want everybody here to understand is I'm not making an advocacy argument. I, I I'm agnostic. I could care less. I'm not here to defend Republican policies. I'm not here to defend Democratic policies. I don't care. That's not my business. My business is winning campaigns. So when I tell you that it's working class voters are shifting and consolidating under the Republican banner, I'm not saying it as a judgment call. I'm saying it as a matter of fact that that's what working class voters are doing and that's what they're saying. That's what precinct results are showing us. That's what polling has been telling us for a few years now. Well, do you remember – I'm sorry. You don't mind if I interrupt you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I I, I know you're not advocating on behalf of Mike Madrid when you were making those remarks. I mean, many people made similar remarks like that, and it actually brought me back to 2016 where Trump had that upset with Hillary Clinton. And everyone was saying that, too, about the working class and Trump and this, that, this is why they're going to Trump and Republicans. And like, okay. But I remember after Trump won and everyone was pissed off, and I was, including myself, but I was looking at the exit polls and found, and correct me if I'm wrong, you may recall your may not, but they correct me if I'm wrong, but the exit polls show that Hillary Clinton won a higher proportion of voters who earned 50K and under than Trump did. And, and it just completely abolished all of that narrative about the working class going to Republicans because they think they represent, it, it turns out most of the people who make, you might call working class, and they tend, yeah. they tend to be white working class, supported Trump not because of notions about upward mobility, but because of the ideas about immigration. Yeah, 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 look, let me jump in here. Let let me jump in here. Yeah, look, I I think you're, yes, yes, I think that that data is factually correct. But that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is they're they're shifting, they're flattening, they're moving since 2016. And yes, not not only do I believe, Josh, that a lot of this stuff is about anxiety about a changing America and the loss of American identity and the loss of privilege, I'm writing a book on it because I think it's that, I think it's that significant. You're absolutely right. There's no question there's a correlation there. And I think it's going to define the survival of our republic if we can't get to a place where enough of these people are no longer voting or no longer on the planet, they're, they're willing to tear down the country because they think that if America's not a white Christian nation, it's not America, right? Like that's what we're fighting against. I, I get it, and I agree with you. But what I'm also saying is it's undeniable that this shift is happening. And keep in mind, realignments don't happen in one election cycle. They happen over decades, and that shift is happening. Hillary may have won at that point, but it's also true that Hispanics are moving to the right, quantifiably, not polling data, voting election results. It's also true that, Hisp- uh, that, that African-Americans shifted to the right, working class folks. It's also true that every dense immigrant, dense precinct in America, every single one of them in 2020 moved towards the Republican Party. Immigrants from all over the world. Of any background, first-generation immigrants, New York Times did a great map on this. All of them showed a shift to the right in the highest turnout elections in the history of the country. So something is happening. And, again, it's not my opinion. It's just data. It's just what's happening. I know. I've seen it, too. Yeah. So, okay. 
I'm going to jump. I got a bunch in the queue. Go ahead and jump back in, Josh, and I'll, I'll, I'll get to your question again, too. All right. Thanks, brother. Okay, bye. M, how are you? I'm well, how are you? Good. I saw you sent a note earlier, too, but go ahead. Give me the question. Shoot okay. at me. Well, one question is based on what you just said, but then I have another. And that is, is everybody moving right, or is the center moving a little bit to the left, and we all end up differently on the spectrum? Make sense? I think ask the question again. It sounds like a really good one. Ask it again. <laughs> the question is, like a lot of things that would have been very left a few years ago are now mainstream. So uh-huh. has the middle shifted or are people move? Does, does that make sense? Moving to the right or does the whole spectrum kind of shifting left, which leaves some people more to the right than they were? Wow. Fantastic question. Look, I, I'm not a believer that there's a middle Okay. okay. <laughs> uh, which, which again is probably a topic for another day. But I believe what's happening is we're actually, if you take the right left paradigm, right? Okay. And you shifted it on its axis so that it was now top down. Okay. That's the way to look at it. Don't look at it as the middle of between do I want bigger or smaller government or where am I at on cultural issues? Look at it as populism versus establishment. That's why you that and when you do that you can explain why there's a Bernie movement on the left and there's a Trump movement on the right and they're all working on attacking kind of like Josh said earlier a lot of Bernie's message was anti-establishment right the system is rigged Trump is saying you know it's all a big swamp it's all corrupt of course he was the biggest part of the corruption but set that <laughs> aside for a moment the messaging becomes the same they're basically anti-establishment I don't know if that's helpful, but that's uh, super so, helpful. Totally yeah. different framework. Exactly. Okay. You have to just look at it differently, and 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 there's a lot. Uh, maybe I should do a topic on this next week. This is actually the course I taught at USC. Is there's no middle anymore? Everybody talks about like the, the Andrew Yang third party, right? And everyone's like, oh, it's these moderates, these centrists. That's not a thing. Like, there's nobody who's saying, you know, we, I just I, I want to be in the center. What people are really saying is, I want people to agree with me more. But if you look at the right-left spectrum and tilt it on its head so it's top-down, you start to understand that the debate is not about the size of government anymore. It's about populism versus establishment. It's about haves versus have-nots. It's about college-educated versus non-college-educated. It's about people who are hopeful about the future that are thriving in this economy and those that are pessimistic and not hopeful in in the direction of this country and so to try to look at it top down as opposed to right left and i think a lot of those questions will get answered oh you should totally do an episode on that because that is fascinating i have always thought like kind of a circle you know like if you go too far out either side you end up back at the beginning yeah you you end up meeting that's kind of that's kind of the way yeah the right left spectrum used to work exactly like that they would meet on the back like a circle but i i don't think that's what's happened i think it's if you shift it and tilt it on its head it's top down it's not right left Oh, super interesting. Okay, my other question right. is not related to that, but it is related okay. to the political operatives and uh-huh. like, you know, that you're you're educating us on how that works. So many different industries have been very clunky and very slow to respond to change, and so many of them have been completely shaken up in the last, you know, decade or so. On all the different political things I listen to, the DCC especially is always very criticized as being, you know, they're not adapting, they're not changing. So my question is though, are Republicans more adaptive in when they when they respond to things and creating ads and creating campaigns? And who is like what is kind of the disruption? There must be disruption somewhere, Mike. Like they can't just take this and leave it alone. There's been a ton of change, as you said, which I mm-hmm. would not have known if you had not explained it about the the twenty percent of people just 
sorry, the abortion thing and, and the enormous turnout and all these things. Who is able to respond that quickly? Who is kind of a disruptor in the political operative scene? Who is making ads or having strategies that are new and disrupt? It's a great question. Um, I'm going to answer it this way by saying the one thing that has been the most disruptive in the American right has been the establishment of the right-wing media ecosystem. And it's not just Fox, although the, the way you get to Fox is through this whole litany of fake news websites and websites that are designed to inflame and anger and scare as opposed to inform. That has been the most disruptive element because what it did was it empowered the grassroots activists, which is a nice way of saying the crazies, <laughs> to, to actually overthrow the establishment. And when, when that happens, what you really do is you empower the mob over the filters that the founders put in our republic. The reason why we have people to decide who will decide for us was to prevent what is happening in modern-day America. And that is we would have rational people that would be elected and they could buffer us from the passion of the mobs. Now it's pure mob. And the reason why is because technology allows information flows to move so fast that the, the human filter can't compete with it. And what the right-wing media ecosystem did was it completely eliminated the filter. It started to drive the mob and empower it in whatever way it wanted to push them so that the, the representative in Congress or in, Senate, in the Senate had to respond to the mob as opposed to serving as a filter to prevent those passions from being instituted. Oh, wow. So the disruption piece has been on the media side. It's not even with the operatives, although the operatives manipulate it. It's a ton of money going into the right-wing media ecosystem to collapse and destroy the hierarchy that existed in the Republican Party. It's not happening on the left as much. I think there's a ton of Russian money that's, that's run through there. I know there's a ton of Russian money. We'll get to that later, but Emma, I got a full queue. I'm going to have yes. to go to the next Thank questions. You. Thank, Thank you. you so much. I hope it was helpful. Yes, thanks. You bet. Annika, you're up. I hope I got that right. Anicha, there's two C's. Unmute. Hey, yeah, that's all right. So Mike, yeah. I've got a question. Oh, well, I guess yes, to, to answer Josh, first of all, I'm an Asian. And, uh -huh. and so Democrat is really bad communicating with Latino and even Asians. Yeah. That's for sure. Yeah. Uh, uh, so my question would be, I talked to the candidate in Arkansas. She doesn't even talk to anybody in Latino the Latino community. Mm -hmm. The reason I know that is because I've been talking to my nurses and everybody. They say like, mm -hmm. no, nobody talked to them, even Republican. So somebody like me, who's not a Latino, can I just <laughs> print out some brochures and give it out at their grocery store or stuff like that? Or <laughs> does it? That's like, a good, no, that? that's look, that's a good question. The, the short answer is kind of, let me explain how you do that. The best thing for you to do is to create an organization that follows the rules and permitting for um, um, pushing out political information. There's there's a, a great organization. There's a lot of great um, Asian Pacific Islanders associations 
One is called APAPA out here, the Asian Pacific uh, Association of uh, – uh, I forget the last acronym, but if you if you if you send me your contact information, I will have some organizations that have set up chapters to help people like you get going to simply provide political information to your community. This is literally why they exist and what they do. One, I want to thank you for doing yeah. that. But the second is there are definitely people that can help you and provide the resources to make sure that you're not getting into yeah. any, any trouble legally and mm-hmm. also give you some good tips on how to do it so that you can be most effective. So, so I can I can approach this society to so that I can build up uh, communicating or spread uh, information to the Latino and to the minority. Um, for me, it's like I don't really care about is Democrat or Republican. Right. I come yeah. from a country where rule of law is nothing, and yep. what I'm seeing is like America is going towards that kind of crazy country. Yeah. So for me, it's like. Democrat really doing a very bad job at communicating with us. Mm-hmm. Like you say, for us, it's about money. We want to make the money. Economy. Yeah. They not even talk to us about this kind of stuff. They talk about like stuff that, to tell you the truth, Gen 6 means nothing to a lot of people. I'm educated. That's why it means a lot to me. But yeah, there's MAGA Vietnamese. They don't give a crap. <laughs> right. Yeah, look, I want to. I want to help you out. So I want you to give yeah, me your yeah. information. Yeah. You can you can send me a message on this app. Okay. Send, send me your email, and I'm going to put you in touch with people who can help you out. I want to thank you for being okay, this civically you. engaged, caring about what's happening. That's the way democracy works. I'm going to pick you up with the right people. Just send me a okay. note, a message, and uh, here on the app, and I'll get, and I'll follow up. Okay. Okay. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Thank you, Olivia. Go ahead and unmute. Hi, Mike. My Hi. name is Olivia, and I am from Kansas. So I'm How really are you? This oh, tonight. all right, right there in the middle of it. Tell yes. us what's going on in Kansas. Uh, a lot's going on <laughs> here, and yeah. Could you yeah. feel the earthquake? Yeah, yeah, most definitely. And yeah. what I was going to say is, I mean, this is easily. I've grown up. I'm 24, and I've grown up here most of my life, and. This is easily the most politically charged I have ever seen our state over the last couple months, specifically over this ballot referendum. Uh And um, you talked a lot about early on in the episode of what, you know, the Kansas vote means on a national scale. But I was wondering if you could talk specifically about what it means for the state of Kansas. Is this a reflection of the fact that, like, abortion is a bipartisan issue? Is Kansas really moving further left, a mixture of both? You know, what's going on here? You know, that's a great question. And while I'm not a a Kansas expert, let me just kind of tell you from the 30,000-foot level what, what I think it means. The the first is you know the, you, there as I mentioned in the intro there's this kind of peculiarity about Kansas because in many ways it's like Nancy Kassebaum country right this is this was like the moderate establishment reasonable Republican the Bob Dole Republican right like it, it, kind of the country club set but not Kansas isn't a country club place it's just down home you know um, good salt of the earth human beings. Right. And they're, they're just conservative folk. Um, but but there's also the kind of Chris Kobox. Right. Right. That, that are just nuts. They're just just crazy right wingers. Yeah. Right? And that strain is there. And he won last night. Right. Right. And so he, he's you know, he's going to be on the statewide ballot again. And this guy's probably the most anti-immigrant human being outside of Steve Bannon and Steve right. Miller. Um, terrible guy. 
And, yeah. and he, he will be there. Kansas have rejected him before, but Republicans have nominated him again. Mm-hmm. And so, so there's both of these strains. I don't want to overstate like what a potential shift might mean. I think that what last night's told us was that on this issue specifically, Republicans have gone too far. You are too extreme and your extremism will be punished at the ballot box. That's what that means. That doesn't mean that they're all of a sudden getting religion and going, oh, I'm a Democrat. Oh, I'm changing on all my positions on everything. Like that's not voter psychology. And that's the mistake that both parties make. Sure. Both parties make that is since 1994, every election with the exception of three have been elections that were for change. That were, uh, that were to vote the party in power out. That's a sign. It's a sign that people are voting against the party in power, not for the party out of power. Right. So what happens is when the Democrats get a majority on everything, they try to do everything they can to get their agenda passed, and then the, 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 then the voters throw them out. And then the Republicans come in, and they've got everything, and they start jamming everything that they want down the voters' throat, and then the voters immediately throw them out. And the voters are not giving a mandate to either party. Mm-hmm. In fact, it's the exact opposite. Now, both parties, because they're politicians, are going to take it that way and try to run that way. But the, no one is winning a mandate. Mm-hmm. Republicans are not winning a mandate in America. Neither are Democrats. Mm-hmm. And if and that's why moderate governance tends to do better. And there is a very strong strain of that in Kansas. But I think a big part of what we saw last night was this rejection of Republican extremism. It does not signify necessarily a shift to the left as much as it is a shift away from the right. Yeah. That, does that, that make sense? A lot of sense because growing up, I mean, Kansans really value practicality, sensibility, common sense. And it's, it's a place where you see a lot of people, for example, I mean, we have a Democratic governor currently And I think one of the major reasons she got voted in was because she cared about fully funding public schools, right? Mm -hmm. Like very ultimately bipartisan issues. So that makes a ton of sense. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I hope that's helpful. A lot of this does just keep coming back to this concept and this idea of negative partisanship. And you're going to hear me say that over and over again as you listen to, to, to this, to, to me, um, um, uh, it, it, it really does drive voter opinion. And it's unfortunately, look, when I was a kid in this business, back when I had, you know, hair and my, my beard was dark and not gray and, you know, I would walk precincts. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, the, the art of political consulting was persuasion. Mm-hmm. There was a third of the people were Republicans, a third of them were Democrats, and there was a third of undecided in the middle. That's not the case anymore. Undecideds are like one or two percent. Mm-hmm. And so what we used, what we started to do more often was we started to use scare tactics and angering our base to yeah. goose turnout. When there's no more persuadable voters, especially as Republicans, if you don't have persuadable voters and you're the minority party, which Republicans are, you have to scare and anger your people to make them show up at higher rates than the opposition. And that's what this is about, is that that extremism people are starting to reject. I hope that was helpful, Olivia. Yeah, it was. Thanks, Mike. Yeah, thanks for joining. Thanks for waiting. I'm sorry about that, but appreciate your patience, and make sure you join us again next week, too. Will do. All right. Bye-bye. Okay, next caller in the queue. Oh, I just lost somebody. Josh. Josh? 
Go ahead. Yeah, unmute. Right I'm going to take you up. JMS, by the way, JMS, if, if you want to jump back up, we'll, 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 we'll make sure you get your questions answered. I know you were waiting earlier, too. Josh, what can I do for you? What, do you, what you got? I just got one. I'm not going to take your brand like the first time. I'm going to keep you. I just got one. I just want your opinion, your expert opinion. Like yeah. Punch. Yeah. So, you know, every, everyone knows that Democrats messaging. I was saying earlier that they have, like, you know, polyolithic base. They don't know who the fuck they talk to. I think that compounds their messaging. But needless to say, their messaging is shit, and everyone knows it. My question to you is that uh, between – you know, and like people like you and Rick Wilson and James Carville, Al Hunt, Trippy, they're all like, you know, let the Democrats are going the offensive with the messaging. You're all a thousand percent right. I completely agree. They should. I just don't think that between now and the next three months that there will do that because we're talking about the fucking Democrats. Now, my question for you, given your experience and what your hunch might be, is that despite their shitty messaging and the fact that lots of people are, don't like Democrats, but their polling is doing somewhat better nationally, given that the fucking Republicans are lunatics, is that let's, assuming Democrats do not change, do you think that, you know, the activism that's been generated with things like Roe and like, you know, what's that woman, uh, Locke in Arizona and like these weirdos will be just enough to sort of generate the turnout that they need to win the fucking midterms in November with Democrats staying just the way everyone has always known them to be all of our lives. My, my, uh, my good question. My hunch is, well, let me just say this. I believe that the Democrats are in a very competitive position right now. They are in the strongest position I have seen them in since Joe Biden was elected. So now, do I believe that they're going to win a majority in the House? Not today. But I don't believe that they're going to get slaughtered either. I think it will be probably 10 to 15 seats. That could change. It, the, they, they could pick up, you know, that, that's just based off of the polling I'm seeing today. That could change. It could get better. It could get worse. Let me rephrase that. It will get better. It will change. It will get worse. So it's not going to be the same. But if the elections were held today, I think that the Democrats would win the Senate, and I think that they would uh, they would probably pick up a couple seats in the Senate, and I think that they would probably lose by 10 to 15 House seats, which is not a bad position to be in given everything that's gone on because I think the Republican caucus will be extraordinarily fractious. So I hope that I hope that answered the question. Yeah, I, I guess I, I, I've been confident about the Senate anyway. I mean, I think they stand to pick up Ohio and Pennsylvania. Fetterman is doing awesome. Ryan is last time I checked is pulling better than JD Vance. Fetterman uh, Fetterman's doing great. I think Fetterman wins. Uh, I don't. I you know uh, again, Pennsylvania is a bluer state than I I think people realize. I think Ohio is a redder state, but the fact that Vance is not doing that well is a real opportunity. I think Ryan is in a genuinely competitive position and can actually win that race. Right. All right, man. You know, all right, I, buddy. All night, man, but I'm going to let you go. Josh, uh, thanks for joining, man. always love your questions. Appreciate it. Thanks for, for sticking in there with us, and uh, we'll talk to you hopefully next week, right? All right, yeah, definitely, brother. All right, man. Thanks so much. Take it easy. Oh. JMS, go ahead and unmute. Hi, Mike. Thanks Hi. for doing it. And I apologize about the back and forth. I'm out of the country. About the Kansas polling. The Kansas polling, 
it essentially indicated that it was even, that there was really yeah. no clear yeah. direction. Yeah. A lot of the polling I've seen lately on a lot of these races mm-hmm. have just been abysmal. Yeah. I great. don't know who's paying, the, paying these pollsters, but they're well, just like wrong. It's a great question, and I'm glad you asked it. I tweeted about this last night. I, I think maybe this morning. I'm, I'm starting to lose sense of time and space. But what I tweeted out was basically this. I was saying a lot of the voter models in the polls are going to be all over the place. And I think we're going to start seeing some messy polling after Kansas. And here's why. Let me explain what happened in Kansas. So if I'm a pollster, um, I, there, there's two really big parts of being a pollster. The first is asking all of the questions in your poll, in your instrument, as we call it, the right way so that you're not biasing the sample. But the second piece and the hardest part is the waiting, which is kind of a joke in the business. The waiting is the hardest part, uh, as Tom Petty would say. The the waiting Tom Petty was talking about is a lot different than the waiting, W-E-I-G-H-T-I-N-G, that pollsters have to use. And by waiting... What they mean is you have to figure out the right balance, the right formula of how many people are going to show up that matches the demographics of the state that you're trying to poll. How many men are there? How many women? How many African-Americans? How many Democrats? How many Republicans? How many people over 65? How many people under 25 that are over 18? Right, And you have to come up with the perfect match to have a scientifically valid sample. But here's what happened. If you look at the, and not only that, but you have to guess at the turnout, not just make an exact replica of the state, but we know, for example, that older people show up at a much bigger factor than younger people. So you have to put more weight on that, on those, those interviews. In other words, you have to include more because more older people are going to vote than younger people. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. So so you have to not just match the demographics, but you have to weight it right. You have to put the emphasis on the answers with the right amount of weight based off of how people vote. So here's what happened. Here's what I'm convinced happened. In Kansas, what they were looking at was these really fatigued Democrat numbers for Biden and the Democratic generic ballot. For the previous eight months, there was no intensity. There was really lackluster engagement for Joe Biden. But after Roe, women specifically and all the Democratic constituencies get extremely pumped up and, and, and angered and motivated to show up and vote. So if I'm a pollster and I'm polling for four or five weeks prior to Kansas – All I can look at is the last six and seven months worth of polling and saying the Democratic turnout is going to be low because these people aren't interested or excited. And while that slowly changes as I get closer to the election, my average is still not going to reflect the enthusiasm of the people who were whose energy was ignited six weeks before the race. Does that make sense? It does. Okay. Yeah, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, I was just going to, the caveat is a number of people I understand in Kansas registered right after the Roe v. Wade decision. Yes, yes. Factor into the polling. Why was it still so close? Wouldn't the yes. 
Yes, that is, a, that is a sign. That is absolutely a sign. What, what she's referring to is I think like 70,000 people registered to vote uh, after uh, the Roe, after Dobbs' decision came out, after Roe was overturned. And like something ridiculous, like 80% of them were women, right? Like huge, like a clear, a clear sign that something is going on that women are pissed, right? And, and, but the question becomes as a professional, what, how much, how much do you weigh that? Like that's never happened before. And so you've got to risk your reputation and the accuracy of your instrument based off of a completely anomalous, completely unique thing when you have a historical guide that if you didn't follow, you would be subjected to professional ridicule for. Now, this happened on the Republican side in the Trump era. Trump had this unique ability to drive turnout for non-college-educated rural Republicans, whites. They, they, they jumped through the roof, which is why a lot of that polling was not entirely accurate is nobody could gauge that because there was no historical trend line for it. So there are difficulties in polling, especially in this era, because again, the only tools that we have are largely history, which the polling was off in 2016, off a little in 2018, off again in 2020, off again here in 2022, three of the last four elections, there have been some anomalies. The reason why I believe is because what is happening is there are particular key constituencies in the waiting that are not done properly. In this case, it was women generally. In Trump's case in 16 and in 20, it was rural, non-college educated whites. They showed up in really high numbers in 16 Hillary's own campaign didn't see it. That's how Trump wins in the Electoral College in some of those key states that have a high percentage of non-college educated white Republicans. And here's the fascinating thing. Those pollsters adjusted their weighting from 2016 to 2020, and they were still wrong because Trump turned them out in even higher numbers in 2020. Right. So again, most of this is, a lot of this is guesswork, but by guesswork, they're educated guesses. And I'm trying to, 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 to be respectful to these pollsters because it's extremely difficult and it's getting harder. But that explains Kansas is, I believe, the fact that this issue happened six weeks, eight weeks before the historical trend line. And again, remember, they're looking at turnout models. You know, for they could look back twenty years. I just, I just, I mentioned earlier in the call, the turnout rates for this midterm election matched the last gubernatorial general election. That's never happened in history. So there's, there's no way to guess at that. And if you were to guess at that, you know, and were wrong, which is highly likely, you know, you would never be able to be a pollster again, taken seriously, because people would say, you know, without, without using history as a guide. What what good are you as a pollster? So I, I hope that explained a little bit of some of the difficulties that pollsters are facing. Yeah, and and the, I guess the point is, as my husband would say, never underestimate a pissed off woman. Never underestimate a pissed off woman for sure, especially if you're in Kansas or in a state where these measures um, are at. If you don't follow me on Twitter, follow me on Twitter. I think Renee posted uh, the states that have um, um, abortion-related measures on the ballot. 
Um, there's a good, you know, half dozen, I think, or so, maybe more. But I, I hope I answered your question okay. You did. Thanks again, Mike. Appreciate good. it. Good. Enjoy wherever you're at. Thanks. You bet. Love Australia. Oh, wonderful. Um, okay, guys, it's six twenty, and I've gone on probably droned on longer than I would have liked to. Um, but I'm hoping, uh, I, first of all, I love this conversation and I, I love you guys. And the more we get engaged with this, um, the more I'm realizing this is probably the right platform. Um, but what, when I need to get a little bit better of reading these questions, a lot of commentary, which I love to see, love to see you guys get engaged in this. This gets me pumped up. This gets me fired up. This is why I do this is, is as long as you guys are finding value in this, as long as I'm helping to, to, to explain some things, at least from my perspective as a practitioner, I'll keep doing it. So if we're getting that, and also, by the way, thank you all for the people who were sharing this on Twitter. That really does help. It helps build engagement. It helps kind of move us up in the rankings. It helps bring new voices to the conversation. So thank you. I think three or four of you guys did that. Big shout outs to, to you guys who did that. It does help kind of drive the conversation. Um, I'm going to sign off. Um, little, little heads up. I will probably not be doing mic drop on Wednesday next week. I'm going to try to do it. If uh, I may do it Wednesday, I may do it Thursday. Um, I'm going to be going out of country. I'm going to be involved in a, um, political campaign that I'll be talking a little bit more about. Um, I don't want to, to, to spill the beans too much, but it, it's going to be a highly, highly volatile situation where there's going to be, you know, democracy itself on the ballot. So I don't want to say too much more about that, but I'm only leaving you guys because there is something very important that I do need from abroad. Um, we'll worry about time zones later. But if you do have questions, shoot them my way. You can shoot them on this. Ask those questions as early as you can because it helps me create uh, and format the discussion going forward. Um, But thank you all for being here this evening. I hope it was helpful. I hope I didn't go on too long. I hope I got your questions answered. Thanks for being part of this community. Let's talk again on Mic Drop next week.